The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. to be back. I've been gone for several weeks and uh, family vacation, seeing family and uh, a little study break. And, and I got to tell you, I won't dwell on this long, but we, have, we are blessed as a church. Um, the whole time I was gone, um, we have some of the greatest elders here at our church and just handled the word so faithfully. And uh, I'm so grateful that I didn't have to wonder, didn't have to doubt. And um, um, just so grateful for what God's doing in our church. And, and listen, every summer at Stone Oak, we take a break uh, from where we currently are right now. That for us, that's First Timothy. But every summer we take a break and we just look as the heat sweeps in, we look at the Psalms. And so we're right in the middle of that uh, right now. And our Psalm today is 123. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read it. Um, I'll pray for us, and then we will get to work in this psalm, okay? So Psalm 123, Psalm 123 um, says this. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. Um, so our eyes look to our God till he has mercy on us. Have mercy upon us. O oh Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our souls have had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of those um, of the proud. God, we um, come to you this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the psalm. I pray that you use this time together that we have, and I pray that you would speak, and that you would give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I want to start us off with a question. I promise it's not as threatening as it may sound at first, but um, the question is this, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? How do you see yourself? Um, again, not a threatening. I don't mean it to be threatening. Uh, but this question is probably more important than you might think at first. And, and actually, I have one more question I want to add, and it's tied to that, deeply tied to that, preceding that first one. Um, who do you think God is? Who do you believe God to be. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not asking, uh, do you know things about God, and can you list out his characteristics? That's great, important, but that's not what I'm asking, really. What I'm trying to get at here is when it comes to you on this hand and God on this hand, who do you think you are, and who do you think he is? Maybe a better way to think about this is where, not who, but where. Where do you think you are, and where do you think he is? Um, this question is foundational to the Christian life and to your identity as a follower of Jesus. When you get this wrong, everything comes off the rails. It all comes off the rails. Um, let me show you what I mean. I'm going to give you a quick example. And um, 
I'll just get to it. The prosperity gospel. Um, If you know me, you know that I do enjoy taking every opportunity that I can to tell you why the prosperity gospel is the worst. You know that. Um, But for a moment, would you think of the question that I just gave you? Who are you? Where are you? Where is God? In light of the prosperity gospel. Um, First of all, how many know what I mean? You don't need to raise your hand here. When I say the prosperity gospel, um, when I say the prosperity gospel, I'm talking about this belief that has kind of crept its way into the church, especially the Western church, um, that says this, and this is going to sound awesome at first. God loves you, and he wants to show his great love for you and his desire to bless you to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's overly simple, but the call of the prosperity gospel is, is in essence, come to God and you have the right to get all of God's good stuff as long as you have sufficient faith for it. So God doesn't want you to be sick. So if you're sick, it must be some sickness, uh, there must be some sin, uh, lack of faith. So what you need to do is pray more, have more faith because God wants you to be healthy and just ignore books like the book of Job. If you're poor, God doesn't want you to be poor, so that lack of money must be a lack of faith or sin, so pray more, have more faith, because God wants to bless you tenfold. Um, If you're sad, oh, God doesn't want you sad. Um, No, that discouragement and struggle, that's definitely a lack of faith, a lack of trust, so repent of that, because God wants you happy, and he wants all of that today. Happy, healthy, wealthy today for his glory. Pray big prayers. Miracles are going to go before you. Cancer is going to vanish. Checks are going to show up in the mail. Have faith. Plant the seed. God's going to deliver. I'm glad no one said amen to that. It would have been very, it would have been embarrassing. Um, but in essence, it's, it's the prosperity gospel says your best life is now. It's today. And who wouldn't want that? Here's the problem, though. It's a disgusting and terrible lie. And it just falls, it it leads people to darkness and bondage and disappointment because it's not true and it's not real. And the prosperity gospel falls apart when it's confronted with real life, actual life. It comes off the rails ultimately when you think about it in light of the word of God. It just doesn't. It doesn't make sense because in this, we see that in this world, we will face trouble. But take heart because as you face that trouble, you face it with Jesus who has overcome the world. That's the the promise. The Bible tells us the truth about ourselves and about our world, and we live in a fallen world. And so the, the promise of the gospel is not come to Jesus and be happy, healthy, and wealthy. The call of the gospel is not come to Jesus and get your best life now. The call of the gospel is to come to Jesus and get Jesus. And he's infinitely better than any number that you have in your bank account and any good report you get from your doctor. He's infinitely better. And he'll be infinitely better for eternity. That's the gospel. So... Prosperity gospel says, come to Jesus, your best life now. True gospel says, come to Jesus and get Jesus today and get Jesus forever because nothing can separate you from Jesus. This is, this is the gospel. And so 
Why do I say that? Again, um, if you know me, I do like to, you know, jab at the prosperity gospel as much as I can possibly do it. Um, But that's not why I'm doing it here this morning. Um, I want to point out something through this. There is a foundational error in the prosperity gospel that is going to come to light as we look at this psalm. I was going to say it's subtle. It's not subtle, actually. It's pretty in your face. Go back to the questions. Who do you think you are? And who do you think God is? Central to the prosperity gospel is this idea that God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy, successful. Central to the idea of the prosperity gospel is something that I'll just put up front, entitlement. It's mine. This is what I deserve. I am entitled because of, I'm entitled to get all of God's good, good stuff. At the heart of the prosperity gospel is a posture of entitlement. And it's a lie that says, tries to convince you that you're the center of the universe and um, that God exists to meet all of your needs and all of your purposes because we're entitled to it. So you come to God. Here's the thing. Um, what, what happens is we turn Jesus to a means to another end. So we come to Jesus to get blank. Whatever you fill in that blank with, you have found your idol. Come to Jesus to get blank. The God of the prosperity gospel is not God, it's prosperity. It's very deceptive and um, wants to get us to think that we're the entitled master and that God has become our servant to make sure we get all those things that we're entitled to get. And this is not new, and I'm picking on the prosperity gospel. It is one of many ways that we believe this lie. It's just a really popular version of this lie. Uh, But from the very beginning, I mean, go back to Genesis 3, like right at the very beginning. We have this temptation that the serpent gives to Adam and Eve that you can be like God, know what God knows, and you you can be God. So the original lie of the serpent was to make you think God's down here, you're up here. There's a sense of this temptation right at the beginning. Entitlement in our relationship with God and others can take so many different forms. And so listen, Um, we're about to get into this this psalm. Um, Do you want me to grab a mic? All right. Obviously, you know, the enemy didn't want you to hear what I'm about to say. Um, (laughs) Listen, my hope... My prayer for this morning, I'm going to give it all away up front so you know where I'm headed. My prayer, my hope is to lovingly and graciously put you in your rightful place for the glory of God and for the good of your soul. That's my hope. And that's what I think this psalm is driving us to see. And so this psalm, Psalm 123, I think is a psalm of of posture check. How's your posture? That's what this psalm does. And so I want to start. Verse 1, it starts very personal, says this. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So to you. A psalmist here is talking about God to you, and he says, who are enthroned. That 
sitting on the throne in heaven above. Listen, you can already start to feel the posture, can't you? You already start to feel it here. Um, to you, the one who is above me, right? To the one who is high above me, enthroned above me. To you, I lift up my eyes. Already this is setting a, a tone for us, a posture uh, for us. And, and so what's happening right off the bat here is that you have you over here, and what the psalmist does is puts God right here, right off the bat in verse 1, our rightful place. And notice this is very personal. It's a personal pronoun, I, not we, not they, I. It starts very personal, and from there it gets even more specific. Look at verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master... As the eyes of a, of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. So we have eyes of a servant to the master, maidservant to the mistress. In both cases, there's something that's very clear here. Um, a few things, actually. Priority, position, and power. First, let me, let's start with priority. Where is the ultimate focus or priority in a relationship between a master and a servant? Obviously, it, it's the master. It's, it's, it's about the master's plan. It's the master's desire. It's not about the servant. The master is in charge. The master has priority. And it's not only priority. What about position? Who has the higher position when it comes to a master and a servant? Obviously, again, the master has the higher rank in that situation. It's the master's belongings and property. It's the master's position. And third, going right along with that, who has the most power in this relationship? Obviously, again, it's the master with the power who is in charge. And so in this verse 2, in this psalm, the servant is looking up to the master, not with a sense of entitlement, you don't see the, the servant looking up and say, Master, you owe me this, right? You don't see him saying, you, like, you must, you better do this for me. I deserve that. Do you know who I am? Why? Why? Because that would be insane. That would be insane because the priority position and power of the master is over the servant. And so the servant here in our psalm approaches the master with a sense of humility, an acknowledgement that the master is the master and that the servant is not, that the, 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 the servant and the maidservant in our text, what do they do? They look up. It's posture language. They look up. And, and, and what, does he, what does he say? He says, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. So our eyes look up to our God who's in heaven, knowing he's above us in priority, position, and power, knowing he's holy and perfect and just. We look up, ultimately, knowing he's God and knowing you're not. And in humility, we look up until he has mercy on us. I want to bring out that word, mercy. Uh, when I see this word, I think, if, if you're like me, maybe you think this way too. When I think of the word mercy, I think of like um, a criminal who is rightly deserving of punishment, and yet it's held back. There's mercy. You're given mercy. Um, withholding something that you have the power to deliver. 
So, in other words, it would be like um, the people of God being like a tiny ant and the thumb being God, and they're going, have mercy, don't squish me. Like, that's what I thought when I think of mercy. Have mercy on me. But as I study this word, um, it's so much more than that. Here, mercy, it literally means to favor, to gain favor from someone. And so, what is happening here is the psalmist is coming before the Lord in a humble way, crying out until he gains God's favor. So it's not like an ant saying, don't smush me, Lord. It's, it's a servant coming before saying, I need your favor. I need you to look on me with favor. Not that I deserve it, not that I'm entitled to it, but God, in your grace and goodness, we call out in humility for your favor. And he cries out, multiple times repeats this. He says, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Show us your favor, in other words. And then he says, for we've had more than enough, more than enough of contempt. We had enough. We're done. And, and this word contempt, um, I don't use it very much in my normal language. Maybe you do. Um, I doubt it. But contempt here, it's defined as this feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration. It's um, worthless or deserving to be scorned. And so what the people of God are saying here, what the psalmist is saying, is we as servants of the master are crying out for the master's favor. Why? Because they've had more than enough of feeling beneath consideration, worthless and deserving of scorn, We've had more than enough of that contempt. And whose contempt? Well, verse 4 says, Our soul has had more than enough, same language, of scorn. From who? Of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So the psalmist is here saying that they are feeling this contempt from the world around them, the culture around them. And, and this is really relatable. Uh, a few things. One thing, it's, it's, it's one thing to be mocked by someone. That's terrible. That's not good. But it's a whole other level of bad and frustrating when you're experiencing, when you're being mocked, being scorned by someone who is just straight up arrogant, and it looks like everything's going great in their life, and they are here having it easy, wealthy, prosperous, and they're the ones mocking you. Like, that's a whole other level of terrible. Like when you think about it, when you're facing sickness and pain and someone who just happens to be super healthy, knows everything about health, begins to mock you, scorn you. Like that's terrible. Uh, maybe uh, when you're facing financial hardships and some proud know-it-all who says, this is the easy way to do it, what are you doing? And they begin to mock you. Like that's a different level of frustration. And yet that's what the psalmist is pointing out. We're sick of the contempt of those who seem to have it all at ease, who seem to have it all going on. And if you think about it in this context, it, it, it is frustrating. This is the people of God, the people chosen by God to be God's people, to be like the light among all the nations. Here, all those other nations are mocking them. That, <laughs> that stinks, my word. 
That stinks. And, and here you have the pagan nations around them who appear to be at ease, mocking them while the people of God are in struggle. We don't know the content or what is causing them to say this and to be in this struggle. But what we do know is that the people of God are saying, we've had enough of this. But you have favor on us, mercy on us. Because with your favor, God, everything's okay. It doesn't matter what they say when we're favored by the God of all creation, right? And so this is what they're calling out for in this, in this psalm. And, and before we move on, I want to point out one thing from this that I think is really relatable. There is no secret that the way of Christ and the word of God has fallen out of favor with popular culture today. Um, it's true in a lot of ways. And by the way, it's always been true. But that fact that it is true is just really obvious, way more obvious than it feels like it's been. Gone are the days, in other words, when if you were to like roll into a, a, a gathering space of like business leaders, I'm just making this up on the fly, but go with me. And you were to drop, hey, I'm a Christian, I go to this church. Gone are the days where, when that would score you street cred and be a good thing. Today, when you say that, you run the risk of seeming simple-minded, outdated, hateful, and an obstacle to any forward progress. That's what you got. Today, more than it used to be, I, I think being a faithful, transparent follower of Jesus, we're going to feel contempt from the world around us. That you would parent the way you parent. That you would believe what you believe about biblical marriage, gender, and sexuality. You would believe that. That, that you would be so outdated and ancient and believe in this book that God has a design that you would believe. L listen, whether you like it or not, to stand on this is to stand in contrast to the world around you. In other words, believing this, following Jesus, will make you weird in the eyes of the world around you. That's always been true, by the way. That will always continue to be true until Jesus comes and makes everything, rules and reigns and makes everything right. But we feel that distinctly today in our culture and in this movement. We will, we are, in many ways, experiencing contempt we're experiencing what Jesus says in, in John 15, where, where he says, listen, if the world hates you, I want you to know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but you're not. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so, remember the word that I said to you, a servant, there's that servant language there, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. If they, if, you, if, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours. So we experience this. Jesus told us that we would experience this. And still knowing that to be true, experiencing contempt from the culture around you can be frustrating and exhausting. Um. I know I just sent our kids out. Man, are they going to face it in a way that I didn't face it when I was their age. Students, 
you're going to experience this. And so let me just offer you some encouragement. You're not the first and you're not the last. You're not the first, you're not the last followers of Jesus to be out, out of step with the culture around them. You're not the first and you're not the last follower of Jesus to experience contempt. In fact, you have great company. You are not alone. You can look through this. You can look through church history and you can read and know faithful uh, stories of faithful men and women who have gone before us, who have stood in the face of this contempt. And I want you to hear me. Not in anger, not in lashing out, not in vengeance or bitterness or fear. No, who have stood in the face of contempt and graciously and lovingly clung to the word of God and clung to Christ and who persevered and endured for the glory of God. We can see this. Because when we face this kind of contempt, I think it's really easy, you probably have felt this, when you're feeling this, is to go on the attack, to post whatever you post on, on Facebook and to repay contempt with contempt. Right? That's the easy way. But would you notice what our psalm says? Here, what does the psalmist cry out for in the face of this contempt? Not for vengeance. It's not God, would you smite them? Not here. Doesn't say that. What he says here, what he cries out for is mercy. Would you show me your favor, God? Would you give me your mercy? Okay, I want you to follow me with this, and I don't want, I don't want us to miss this. This is the people of God saying this. They were the favored people of God. They were the chosen people. And this means that in a very real way, the psalmist is pleading for something that they already have. They they were favored, and here they're saying, would you, God, would you favor us? The psalmist is crying out for something that has already been given to them by God. So how relatable is that, church? How relatable is that? No matter what you are facing in your life, we should learn from this psalm. We can cry out, God, would you show me your favor? But Christian brother, sister, I want to encourage you with something really powerful this morning. In Christ, you have the favor of God. You cry out for something that you already have. And I want to show you this. I'm going to go really quick through this. I just could not resist. It's one thing if I just summarize it. I think it's better if I should show you, okay? Ephesians, let me show you this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Church, that's favor. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is favor. In love, he There we go. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved church. That is favor. In him we have redemption through his blood. Favor. The forgiveness of our sins. That is favor. According to the riches of his grace, which he, what he lavished on us. Favor. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. That right there, 
That's favor. I can't end there, though. Verse 11 says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Wow, that's favor. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, favor, in him you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Favor, 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 favor. This is just one part of one chapter. Favor, favor, favor. You have the favor of God in Christ. We plead for mercy. We plead for grace that we have already received in Christ. In Christ, you are favored. This is yours. And so this is true no matter what you go through. No matter what you're going through, come what may. Whatever you face in this life, you are favored by God today and forever. And that being true, don't be shocked when the world around you does not love you or think you're clever or think you're awesome or believe what you believe. Don't be shocked when they think you're crazy for clinging to this and clinging to Jesus. Don't be discouraged when you fall out of favor with them because in Christ you walk in the favor of God. And it's in a text like this, it may seem, um, like in our culture even, it may seem that we're being mocked and held in contempt and it may seem like it's going good for them and things are on the upswing for them. It may seem like they have it good, but listen, that bubble will eventually pop. It always does. Movements come and movements go. Revolutions come and revolutions go. Nations rise, nations fall, but this stands firm forever and ever and ever. This is eternal. And so, brother, sister, what that means, let's not get wrapped up in chasing fleeting favor, fleeting things. Instead, we walk and we know the favor of God that is eternal. Now, I want to come back to the basics here. Um, that favor is only possible when you know who you are and when you know who your God is. More specifically, that favor is only possible when you know that he is God and you're not. When he's the master and you know that you're the servant, that favor and that mercy is found when we know our place. And so going back to that great lie that I started with, that lie at the beginning of the temptation in the garden in Genesis 3, or that lie that I talked about with the prosperity gospel that says, hey, this this life, this world, this universe revolves around you. You're entitled to be happy and to be healthy and to be wealthy. You're the center. Listen, if you believe that lie, If we believe that lie, when things don't go our way, what do we do? We shake our fists at God and we say what? How dare you, God? Like, I don't deserve this. How are you putting me through this? Or when people disappoint us and and we get angry, when we believe this lie that we're the sinner and we're entitled to everything, all of a sudden we say, how dare you? Do you know who I am? Right? It's this sense of posture, this entitlement that we begin to have And so for all of us, because I do think that we all experience that feeling from time to time. We've said this multiple times this morning, but we all are sinners, fall short. Part of that sinfulness is is entitlement. And so I think we all feel this. And so listen, 
for all of us, and whenever we feel this temptation, I want to give you the most freeing statement. It's four words. You are not God. It's the most freeing statement. It's so beautiful. It reminds me of what James says in, four, in James 4. What's your life? It's a mist that appears and vanishes. It's fleeting. You're not God. Your life is fleeting. You're not entitled to the good life. In fact, yeah, I have time. Scripture is very clear on what you are entitled to. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Later in Romans, Romans 6 says, the wages of that sin is death. So that's what you're entitled to. That's what I'm entitled to. If we get right down to it. If you and I were given what we deserve, you would be given death, hell, and an eternity separated from Christ. That is your entitlement. And I know there's some control freaks in here self-included at times. Um, But listen, we like to think about ourselves being the master of our own lives. But I got to ask you, how's that going? Like how much of your life is actually in your control? How much of your life are you truly the master of? The more I live, the longer I live, the more I understand how little is in my control. And the more I realize, praise God, that I am not the center of this universe. I'm not the master the more I realize my life is really fleeting. And if I fought for what I deserved, I would rightfully be given death and hell. And as depressing as that might sound, I promise you that that is actually the key to a life of lasting purpose and fulfillment and joy. And the reason I say that is because the great lie of the enemy, again, is to make you think that you're the center, that you're God, that everything revolves around you and you're entitled. Yet, I got to tell you, that is the single most miserable version of life possible. The self-centered, selfish life is miserable because your shoulders are not meant to bear and carry that amount of weight. It will crush you like it is crushed all who have gone before you who have gone down that path. He is God and you are not. And true happiness in this life and life eternally is only possible when we reject the lie that you're God and when we humble ourselves before our God. When we understand what the psalm says, we are the servant looking up to the master. Um, I want to bring out, I know I quoted a little bit of James 4, but I want to bring out something here. Uh, James 4, 6 but says, but he gives more grace word is very similar here to the word mercy that we see in the psalm. It's about favor. It's mercy, grace, favor. And he says, therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our God gives his favor to the humble. So James continues and says this, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Just like a, a, a servant to his master, maid servant before mistress, like in our psalm, stop trying to be the master, humble yourself, submit yourself to the master, and James says, resist the devil, he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the promise to you. No matter what you're facing today, submit yourselves to the Lord, resist the devil, he will flee, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's it. So I want to go back to our question that we started. Who do you think you are? Who do you think he is? Again, lovingly, graciously, I I pray. My desire is to put 
you and me in our rightful place for the glory of God and for the good of our souls. And so, listen, no matter what you're facing today in this life, good, the bad, the ugly, no matter your background, no matter if you're new to the faith or you've been following Jesus for years, I think we would do well to listen to James' words next that says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. When you try to exalt yourself to be the master, it ends in disaster and pain. When you try to exalt yourself, you might feel you won the victory, but that victory is short-lived, church. But when you humble yourself and know your place as his servant, God pours out his grace, his mercy, and favor so that no matter what you face, and I'm talking the good, the bad, again, the ugly, it doesn't matter. Whatever you face, through all of it, you can walk in the favor and acceptance of God. When you humble yourself before your God, you can know the victory that is in Christ, and that victory is eternal. And so as we finish up, I have one more question. Last question of the morning is how do we do this? How do you know? How do you know if you are coming to your God entitled? One thing I know is that um, I've begun to realize that we are the best at lying to ourselves. Like we're really good at it. And so how do we know if we are entitled as we come to our God? How do we know? And if we are entitled or dealing with that posture, with this posture check, um, how do we humble ourselves? How do we do this? One of the things we know is that the Holy Spirit, one of, one of his jobs in our lives is to convict of sin. I have one more text that I want to put up here, and this comes from John 16. Jesus says this. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Crazy statement here. Jesus, son of God, saying it's to your advantage that I go away. He says, if I don't go away, the helper's not going to come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, church, the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin. Kind of like a spotlight. The Holy Spirit will shine light into the dark corners. And sin hates light. Sin thrives in dark corners, loves it. And so what will often happen is sometimes the Holy Spirit will use moments like this, the preaching of the word, to just like a spotlight shine into your heart to convict you of sin. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will use just moments when you're reading the word to shine a light and convict you of sin. Sometimes he'll use moments of just prayer, time with Jesus where, where he will convict you. Sometimes he will use people in your life. That one's hard. The people of God in your life who he will use to reveal things in you, in your life, to shine those lights into the dark corners. Also, many of you know this, the Holy Spirit can also use situations in our life. Um, sometimes rock bottom moments to teach us, to get our attention, and to shine his light into dark corners for his glory and for the good of our souls. At times, God will use life to graciously humble us. And so, listen, I believe that the Holy Spirit's going to bring that conviction to your heart. That's what he does. So here's the question. What 
are you going to do in response to that? Our prayer must be Psalm 139 that says, search my heart, know me, try me, know my thoughts, test me. We got to pray this because church, he's going to do that. And when he does, what are we going to do? We need to confess our sin because he's faithful and just to forgive. This is a posture check this morning. Um, And if you have the posture of entitlement, it's time to confess and lay that down, to humble yourself and to be humbled. I think of the prodigal son as we close. I don't have time to read the prodigal son. Uh, Read Luke 15 this morning, but it's a story of two sons, two brothers and a loving father. And listen, there is no better example of entitlement than the younger son in the story. Basically, he says, look, dad, give me what's mine, and I'm gone. And he takes it all like an entitled little brat. And after he squanders it all, he comes broken, shattered, limping back home, pleading with his father for mercy. And and guess what he says? He, He pleads with his dad to treat him as one of the hired servants. Entitlement gave way to humility, and the father embraces him and exalts him with a massive party. It's a picture of the father's heart. When we lay down our entitlement and humble ourselves before him, and that's the call this morning. He is God, you are not. You are the servant, he is the master. And as the master's servant, let me tell you, regardless of what the world says to you, regardless of the way the world thinks about you or the way they think about Jesus, through Christ, as the master's servant, you walk in the favor and mercy of the master and praise God, the master is good. 